series of years and give him a legitimate opportunity. We used heart attack in the league. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Good morning, everybody. This is another edition of the Passball Show brought to you by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck, located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. Also by JohnPielli.com. A handful of things we're going to get into today. In the world of baseball sports in Unified America, reminding you if you want, you want to be part of the program, of course it belongs to you. You can make a comment on YouTube or Facebook Live. And if you give a show a call if you want, the number is 732-364-3598. Um, any content that you guys provide for the program, anything that's on your mind is going to take precedence over anything that I'm saying today. If you saw a little tease of the show today. We're going to talk a little bit MLB hot stove and more along the lines of comparing it to the last couple seasons which haven't worked out so well for the prominent free agents. You look at a guy like Mike Moustakis gets a four-year contract from the Cincinnati Reds after waiting two really long free agent seasons to end up getting himself a deal first with the Royals and then with the Brewers. Things worked out for him. Is that a sign of things to come for other free agents. We'll talk about that in a little bit. We're also, I'm going to let you in to a little insight of what it's like to be at the baseball winter meetings. Um, this will be my sixth straight year going down there. I'll be down in San Diego. My plane leaves Friday morning. Looking forward to it. Uh, I'll spend a little time talking about what my experiences were like and really why you should go down there or maybe why it would make sense for you not to go to the baseball winter meeting. So we'll talk about that in a little bit. I got my top 10 NFL head coaches of all time, which I'll talk about in a couple minutes. But the first thing I got to start out with is something that frustrates me. And if you listen to the show over the last couple weeks, you heard me talking about uh, arguments that you have or takes that you have. And you work real hard at, at your takes to make sure that you're backing them with as many facts as possible. And the facts that you're usually using to prove that you're right don't have the value that they used to have anymore. You know, if somebody has a difference in opinion, they say it's just a difference in opinion. But you know what? There are different strengths or different um, values of an opinion. You can say, hey, I feel that way, but all, if all the facts are against you, then that opinion is not really as strong as you make it out to me. Sure, everybody has the right to have their own opinion. You can believe whatever it is that you want to believe. It doesn't mean you're right. And we're looking at a generation, and it's getting frustrating. And I know from the beginning of time, there's been a gap between generations. In other words, parents look back at their time growing up and say, hey, their kids have it a little bit better or maybe their kids are more privileged or they don't understand why the kids of today act the way that they did. And then their kids grow up and become adults and have kids of their own. And then they look at their kids and they say, well, 
you know, I had to go through this, I had to go through that. My kids are a little more privileged than I was when I'm growing up. I don't understand why the kids today do what they do and so on and so forth. Every generation looks back and, you know, it appreciates what they needed to go through to get to where they are as adults. And they look at the younger generation and they say, hey, maybe they don't have to do as much or maybe they just don't get it. So how does this apply to the world of sports? This is something I've been thinking about for a long time. And, you know, I want my takes when it comes to stuff like this to be well thought out. But I also want to hear the counter argument. I'm talking about the next generation, which I guess is my kids' generation, the so the quote-unquote millennials, and their thought and the way that they think. And obviously, when you say this, you're generalizing, you're saying that an entire generation of people all think the same way, and you know that's very flawed. And like I said, going back to the initial point that I made when I first started talking about this, every generation grows up and becomes adults and they look down on a generation that comes up after them and just says well I don't know if they can make it the same way that I made it and you're seeing a generation here unfortunately is coming off a little bit soft but is also coming off uh, very very defensive against anybody that does anything that they're not supposed to in other words you're talking about a guy like Josh Hader of the Milwaukee Brewers. Some tweets get on earth of when he was 16, 17, saying racist and homophobic things. There's nobody that's gonna defend that and say that that is okay. But what should be the penalty for something like that? I think the fact that he has to live with that and live with that stigma and that reputation for what he's forever gonna be known as is a pretty strong punishment by itself. Now, I think if those statements, the things that he made were handled in real time, sure, there are some sanctions that could be held against him. Maybe it could have determined whether a team wanted to draft him and bring him up through their minor league system and uh, look at this guy as a good character guy or as a, a, a player that you could trust for, you know, for what's going on between the ears as opposed to what he could contribute on the field. I get that. And I understand why there's a strong take about people that are against what Josh Hader did. There's no way that you could explain why his tweets, which were both racist and homophobic, homophobic should be considered acceptable. But that's as far as I'm going to go with this. You're looking at the generation now, the millennial generation, that not only wants this person to be judged in every single facet of their life. They say, hey, I don't want this player playing for my team ever, which I'm going to touch on in a little bit. I'm going to tease this little part. I'm going to get into this, and this is how I'm going to finish off my discussion about this topic. But, you know, they say, I don't want this player on my team. And then if 30 teams fans say, well, Josh Hader said racist and homophobic things through Twitter when he was 16, 17 years old. I don't want this player on my team. What are you, in fact, asking? You're, in fact, asking that this person's comments, which were not appropriate, were not acceptable, and should not be considered acceptable, have a penalty of that person not being able to work. 
And you've heard me make this point before. I, I believe in the justice system that we have in this country. I believe in somebody that does something wrong, having to face the music and a penalty for what it is that they did. But that's as far as I'm going to go with it. I don't think that person should be barred from working. I don't think that person should not be allowed to make a living. Once again, assuming condition number one is met, that that person faces whatever punishment they have to face for the acts that they committed. Somebody commits murder, if they get a life sentence, then they're not going to have the opportunity to work again. Their life sentence, they're going to be in prison for the rest of their life. Or if their penalty for their crime they commit is execution, they're going to be killed as part of the penalty for what they committed. That person can't work. But for somebody that commits something, whether it's a violent act, whether it's a nonviolent act, and faces the music, whether it's a jail sentence, whether it's you know, you, whether you feel that they got off a little easy, once they're freed back into society, they have the right to work just like you do. And just because they have a name to them, just because you know who Josh Hader is, doesn't mean that his acts should be treated any differently than yours. In other words, if you said the same homophobic and racist things through Twitter when you were 16 years old, the reason you don't have to face any public scrutiny for a minute is because nobody knows who you are. You, even if they did know who you are, you'd have the ability to work a job. So whatever it is that you do for a living, maybe you're not at your big boy job or big girl job yet, you have the right to work despite of any mistakes or anything that you did that was inappropriate or wrong in the past. So I believe in a punishment fitting the crime. I believe up to a certain point that there should be an eye for an eye. Whatever you do, there should be sanctions and a penalty for it. But what I don't believe is under any circumstances, you should keep a free man, and obviously man, I mean woman too, it's mankind, not a gender thing that I'm talking about here, but every man, every free man should have the right to work. And if you don't see that, I don't understand what your counterpoint is. And that's one of the things that frustrates me because I, I've said all along. It's like you're talking to the wall when you're using facts to back your argument of people that just can't accept the fact that they may be wrong in this assessment. I don't believe because you are known as a person in the spotlight, if you're Urban Meyer and people know who Urban Meyer is, that he deserves to lose his job because his assistant is a jerk and beating his wife. One thing, sure, is it negligence on the coach part? Maybe. And if that team, if Ohio State at the time decided that they wanted to let Urban Meyer go, they'd have the right to do that. But there's no reason that they have to. Urban Meyer shouldn't lose his job because of the actions of somebody else. And if Urban Meyer was involved in it and another team wanted to hire him, he should not be without the right to work. Greg Schiano gets the job as the Rutgers head coach again. You heard me rant about, a, what, a year, a year and a half ago about the possibility of him getting a job in Tennessee and the backlash because, oh my God, God forbid, he was on the coaching staff 
of Penn State when Jerry Sandusky was molesting little boys. There was never any evidence that Greg Schiano saw anything. There was never any evidence that Greg Schiano was involved in anything of this. But because Greg Schiano, the name, is popular, people wanted to do what they can to take him down. And that's what they want. That's what the younger generation wants to do. They want to take down everybody with a name to them. And if they could tie them into something devious, they want to take their job away from them. As if that's the right thing to do. And it's not. Because if you were to make the same mistake, odds are, unless your mistake involved your job, unless your mistake was something that you did wrong, which requires termination for your job, anything independent you do, as long as you're a free man, is not going to require you losing your job. And the same should not apply to athletes, to entertainers, to people in the spotlight, just because you know their name and they don't know yours. And the last part I want to talk about this is as it applies to one's favorite team. I don't want Josh Hader playing for my team because of what he tweeted. As if your team and your fandom is the biggest group of positive people that have never done anything wrong. I'm not going to use the word mistakes because when I say mistakes, it's like I'm trying to defend somebody that screwed up. A lot of people have screwed up. You look at the many players that are involved in domestic violence, whether it comes to football and baseball. They didn't make a mistake. They screwed up. But I would probably, if you go through the 30 teams in Major League Baseball, the 32 teams in the National Football League, I'd make a solid bet that there's a domestic violence abuser that has played for every one of these teams. And it doesn't matter what team you happen to be a fan of, you root for the uniform. So you're going to stop being a fan because a domestic abuser happens to play for your team? There's no such thing as a team that you can't go back in history and say that there was a bad person that played for that team or a person that did something devious or wrong that played for that team. You root for the uniform. And in all honesty, it might bother you to root for a player that you may not particularly care for. It may bother you to root for a player that you may not necessarily like. There's bad people that play for every team. It doesn't matter what team that you root for. You're going to find somebody that screwed something up. You're going to find somebody that did things that they're not supposed to do. If you're a Mets fan and you're saying, oh my God, why would the Mets ever trade for Josh Hader? I couldn't watch the Mets if Josh Hader was on that team. Were you a fan when Jose Reyes came back to the Mets in 2016 and was there through 2018? Because I bet you probably were. Did you, did you blacklist or not go to Mets games over the course of that time because Jose Reyes was involved in a domestic violence incident, which, by the way, led to his release from the Colorado Rockies so he could sign back with the New York Mets? Don't take a stance now and not embrace your past. Because odds are, if you're a Mets fan now and you are hating on the fact that Josh Hader could, and I think it's still unlikely that he even gets traded for Milwaukee, but if for some reason he did get traded for Milwaukee to the New York Mets, why, why would you be so pissed off about Josh Hader playing for the Mets when I didn't hear you say anything about Jose Reyes? 
Bartolo Colon and some page six stuff with the second family. He played for the Mets too. And remember, the Mets have a history of the 1986 team that did nothing but devious stuff, drugs and women. And you know, unfortunately, their, their acts ended up ruining a couple players' lives. And yes, you could say that was more self-destructive, but to root for those guys was not necessarily rooting for the nicest and best people. This copyright and broadcast is authorized under internet rights granted by the World Wide Web and is solely for entertainment of our audience. Any publication or reproduction are the use of the pictures, descriptions, and accounts of this show without the express written consent of the past ball show, JohnPLA.com and JohnPLA LLC is prohibited. Any commercial or the use of programs such by charge and admission for showing is similarly prohibited. So I spent a little time thinking about this. The top 10 coaches in NFL history, and the reason that this is relevant, the reason that this is a good topic to bring up, the 100th anniversary of the National Football League. Professional football started really in a time of 1920. You've seen the many different leagues that have been around, most prominently with the NFL, but the modern-day pro football fan resonates with the Super Bowl era, which is the last, what, 53, 54 years. And a lot of football that happened before that, unfortunately, is not given the credit that it deserves. And I think of some of the top players to ever play in the game. And the unfortunate thing is, is that a lot of the players that played in the 30s and the 20s and the 40s and the 50s may not have not necessarily gotten the credit that they deserved. And I think the All-NFL team, the NFL 100, a lot of historians and a lot of people that studied football in times that were before mine and certainly before a lot of the people that are listening and viewing the show right now, giving some of the older and impactful players their due. And I think the same applies to the world of coaching. It's very easy to think of the best coaches of all time because, you know, I'm going to mention some of the names when, when I go over this list, but a lot of the names you're going to hear are contemporary names. But because of that, you look back at some of the top coaches that existed for many, many years and wonder why their names are being omitted. And I do think there's a problem with that. I think that's something that is, is unfortunately a little bit negligent if you really are a true sports and a true football fan. You could talk about the greatest team since 1980 or 1960 or whatever year it was that you were born, but if you embrace the sport, you know that a lot of great things happened before you were born. So when I was thinking of this list, there were three coaches that stood out to me that I wanted to put in my top 10, but ended up falling a little bit short. And I'll give you quick reasons why each one of them did. The first one is Bill Parcells. And of course, Bill Parcells, the coach of the the great Giants teams in 1986 and 1990, obviously coached with the Patriots, taking them to the Super Bowl with the Jets and the Cowboys after that. And it's not that Bill Parcells was not an innovator. It's not that Bill Parcells, you know, doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. It's not that he wasn't one of the best coaches ever. The thing that bothers me the most about Bill Parcells and the reason that I can't put him in my top 10 of NFL head coaches of all time is because of the fact that he couldn't stay in one place for a long period of time. Did he have to stay in New York with the Giants throughout the rest of his career? No, because there's a lot of good coaches that made different stops. There's many coaches that coached in multiple places and were still successful. 
there were many coaches that didn't get the opportunity to stay in one place for their entire career, which we'll talk about some of those guys in a little bit. But the fact that Bill Parcells decides to leave the Giants, I still don't like the way that he chose to leave there. Bill Belichick at some point was going to get a job as an NFL head coach. Belichick ends up leaving, and then Parcells ends up surprisingly leaving after that, pretty much leaving the Giants, a team that he helped win two Super Bowls, to kind of scramble to put somebody in charge of the team for the next season. And it was, of course, Ray Handley, a guy that wasn't necessarily qualified. And because of that, the Giants were set back for a little bit. But it bothers me that Parcells, even after taking a job in New England, he leaves to go to the Jets. At some point, he leaves the Jets because he's felt like he's been there too long. Stays out of the league a while, goes back to the Dallas Cowboys. Now I get why he keeps coming back, because he's a coach. And that's what coaches do, they coach. But why, in his mind, and that would be the first question I'd ask Bill Parcells, why couldn't you ever feel comfortable of being identified as a coach of one team? Or be in one team and say, hey, this is where I'm comfortable being. Because in just about every situation, Parcells had the last choice. He, at least to my knowledge, was never fired from any one of his head coaching jobs. Next guy that I bring up, I thought was a good coach. Won a couple Super Bowls. Three, if I'm not mistaken, with the Washington Redskins, and that's Joe Gibbs. And Joe Gibbs, obviously, a great post-football coaching life, being a leader of a great racing team, a racing team that has generated a ton of money and revenue. And really, he's, 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 been, he's probably the example of a great two-sport coach or athlete that doesn't actually play either sport. Joe Gibbs's three Super Bowls are great. Joe Gibbs retiring when he retired, especially to devote the rest of his career to the world of racing, was great. He tarnished his image when he came back. You know, was it 17, 18 years later? And it's unfortunate because he could have probably foreseen the fact that pro football has changed. And maybe if he had brought some more in-tune assistance to work with him and help provide some of the data that helps the modern-day coach, he wouldn't have looked as bad as he did. But when I think of the best coaches of all time, unfortunately, I think of what my last memory of that coach on the sideline was. And to me, with Joe Gibbs, it was not so good. Not that he forgot how to coach. But maybe he could have questioned whether or not he even came back. Bill Parcells leaving too many times is the reason I leave him out of my top 10. Joe Gibbs getting that urge to coach, and like I said, coach is coach, to come back after being out of the game for so long is part of the reason why I leave him out. And the last coach is a Hall of Famer. Obviously known for his video game and his years of broadcasting, a legend. There are many people that don't know a lot about pro football. They don't follow football, but they know who John Madden is. And John Madden had a chance to be a great head coach, one of the best ever. Got into broadcasting, was very successful with his time at ABC and, of course, at, at Fox for many, many years. Came up with the video game as... Uh, a millionaire. He's, he's made a ton of money off of the sport. You know, he had to get out of Oakland 
I don't think he coached long enough. And you want to say the top 10 coaches all time, I think every one of these guys coached enough. So Parcells, Gibbs, Madden, kind of right on the outside looking in. Another guy that I'm going to give credit to, and he fell a little short on this list, Marv Levy. Four straight Super Bowls with the Buffalo Bills. Never won a Super Bowl, and that's the reason why he isn't in the top 10. So we'll start out with number 10, and the first guy that I'm going to bring up here is the great Hank Stram. And Hank Stram stands out for me because of his mixture of championships as a head coach. Led the Kansas City Chiefs to a Super Bowl championship. Led them to an AFL championship in 1966. And also led the Dallas Texans to an AFL championship in 1962. One of, one of the coaches that unfortunately doesn't get the credit that he deserves because of the timing that he was a head coach. And there's a couple guys that are going to be on this list that I'm going to give more credit for because they happened to coach before the Super Bowl era. Hank Stram, 17 years in the National Football League, a great head coach. Like I said, a two-time champion head coach, AFL champion in what? You know, Super Bowl, was it two? When the Chiefs lost to the Green Bay Packers or Super Bowl one? Hey, listen, he did a great job. The problem being, hey, if you don't win the last game, you're not a championship head coach. But Hank Stram, number 10. I'll go number nine now is a guy to coach for a really long time and may have been unceremoniously let go when Jerry Jones took over as the owner of the Dallas Cowboys. And that's Tom Landry. And Tom Landry had a remarkable career. Was be, you know pretty much became bigger than the sport. Uh, and and really was just about that untouchable as a coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Unfortunately, hey, an owner comes in, he says, "Listen, I want to make a change." And it looked bad that Tom Landry was like, oh, it was his worst season as a head coach, 3-13. and 13, His worst since the first season where he took over in 1960 when the Dallas Cowboys were 0-11-1. But one, two-time Super Bowl champion, five times in the Super Bowl. You know, it helps when you coach for, you know, almost 30 years. Tom Landry, number nine. So number eight. I'm going to go with a guy that I see a lot of similarities to Landry. And I really thought when I was going back and forth with this, I was like, hey, who's better? I'm going to give a slight edge to Don Shula, two-time Super Bowl winning coach of the Miami Dolphins. Of course, the only undefeated season in regular season and postseason in National Football League history. Those, uh, you know, the 72 Dolphin team will always be remembered. Shula was a, a very good coach. Uh, of course, started as the coach of the Baltimore Colts and, you, you know, made it to Super Bowl three where they lost to the Jets, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, got it stuck around and, you know, anybody that gets, you know, 33 years as a head coach and that pretty much was the difference for me. Hey, he was, he did it in two places. I know he didn't win the Super Bowl with the Baltimore Colts, but was a very, was one of the best coaches of all time. Undefeated team. So I'm going with Shul, number seven. Number six, I'm going with a guy that basically is the epitome of longevity as a head coach in the National Football League. I think of him as the Joe Paterno or the Bobby Bowden of the National Football League. 
and a lot of credit doesn't go his way because of the amount of time that he coached and the fact that it was almost all predominantly before the Super Bowl era. And I'm, of course, talking about George Hallis. Coached his first NFL game as a head coach in 1921, just the second year of National Football League history. Coached all the way through until 1971. 40 years. A little bit of a break, but won championships there. 1921, 1963. I think it was, what, 481 overall or six. Listen, a great coach and certainly the epitome of longevity. Started coaching it at a, at a young age. Essentially was the Connie Mack of pro football head coaching. And George Hallis ranks number seven. Number six is a guy that won four Super Bowls for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And that, of course, is Chuck Knoll. And you look at his, you know, the people that took over for him, whether it was Bill Cower, whether it was Mike Tomlin, and obviously you look at a very long history of Pittsburgh Steelers head coaches that, hey, three head coaches in a really long time speaks a lot about the organization. But Chuck Knoll, four Super Bowls, you know, it's hard to not put him in the top ten. So we go over to number five, and it's a, another legendary head coach of the San Francisco 49ers, and that's Bill Walsh. Bill Walsh basically owned the 1980s. It helped that he had some of the best players to ever play in NFL history, whether it was Joe Montana or Jerry Rice or Ronnie Lott or Charles Haley. And obviously the list you could go on and on, talk about good players, complimentary players, and some other greats that I may have omitted. But those San Francisco 49er teams just stacked from top to bottom were some of the best teams that we've ever seen. Certainly some of the best teams that we've ever seen in my lifetime. And it takes a great coach to lead a team like that. And Bill Walsh certainly deserves to be in the top five amongst the best coaches of all time. So you want to talk about top four. And we'll mention that Walsh was five. Chuck Noel was six. George Hallis was seven. Don Shula was eight. Tom Landry was nine. Hank Stram was ten. Bill Parcells, Joe Gibbs, John Madden, Marv Levy were right on the outside looking in. So if I'm going to name four Great coaches, the best of all time. Who would I have left? The first one I got to start out with is the legendary Paul Brown. And once again, we talk about different times in NFL history where coaches, just like players, don't get the respect and credit that they deserve. Paul Brown coached 25 years in the National Football League. He led the Cleveland Browns to a total of seven championships. Three in the National Football League, 1950, 1954, 1955, and four in the AAFC, which was kind of the American Football League before the American Football League. So 46 through 49, all four years that this league existed, Paul Brown led that team to a championship. So you want to talk about the best coaches of all time, you don't hear enough discussion about Paul Brown. And he is number four on my list. Number three is another guy that doesn't get any credit. He has a field named after him, 
and it, it stands out because this guy was this guy was very good at what he did. And that's Curly Lambeau. Curly Lambeau coached for 33 years in the National Football League. And you know how many NFL championships he led the Green Bay Packers to? One, two, three, four, five, six. Six NFL championships. From 1921 to 1953. He had a Hallis-like resume. The guy stuck around for a long time. Coached a couple of years with the Chicago Cardinals and the Washington Redskins after he left the Green Bay Packers. But one of the best coaches of all time that nobody talks about. Like I said, we live in a now. We want to talk about the best coaches that we've seen sometimes about the best coaches that are in the game right now. But you'd be insane to not mention the likes of Curly Lambeau who's one of the best head coaches in National Football League history. Paul Brown, four. Curly Lambeau, three. And obviously, there's two left. And I would probably put a poll out there and say, how many of you can identify the top two coaches of all time? Because I think there's a good consensus where we all can kind of agree. Maybe not necessarily in the order, but there are two coaches that stand out. One is very conventional and active right now, and one is just known as the legend for, for being what he was. And I'm going to start out with the guy that I ranked number two, and that is Vince Lombardi. And Vince Lombardi stands out because the guy as a coach almost never lost. And when you think of who is the best coach of all time, you're looking at a guy that just coached 10 years. Of course, his sudden death before he could coach a second season as the Washington Redskins stands out. But there's a coach that led the Green Bay Packers to wins in Super Bowls one and two. Three times before that was the NFL champion, so a five-time winning head coach. And you could say, wow, well, Curly Lambeau won six. Yes. And you could say that the great Paul Brown won seven. Yes. But there is a little mystique that exists. And it's not just how many championships do you win as a head coach. What type of resume do you have? How do you stand out when you talk about generations upon generations? And you'd be remiss if you were ever talking about great head coaching as it exists in the National Football League and not mention Vince Lombardi's name. His name's on the Super Bowl trophy for a reason. Five-time champion, including two Super Bowls. It, it's you know there was a time that existed that there would be nobody in the same breath as Vince Lombardi, and obviously you've seen times change, and that's why it's almost impossible to talk about the greatest head coach in National Football League history and not say that it's Bill Belichick. And Bill Belichick has had a great twenty-year run with the New England Patriots. Part of it is the fact that he and Tom Brady have been, for the most part, on the same page, doing the same thing, We're, you know, running roughshod in the AFC East every year, being a top two seed and having a nice run, but also winning those big games in the division round and at the AFC championship every year, or almost every year, to get to nine Super Bowls. 
it's something that's almost impossible to do. To get to nine Super Bowls, it's likely something that we'll never see again for one coach. And the fact that he's won six of them. There's been teams, there hasn't been a team in National Football League history that has been to more Super Bowls than Bill Belichick has been as the head coach of the New England Patriots. So I'll go through the list one more time. 10, Hank Stram. 9, Tom Landry. 8, Don Shula. 7, George Hallis. 6, Chuck Noll. 5, Bill Walsh. 4, Paul Brown. 3, Curly Lambeau. 2, Vince Lombardi. 1, Bill Belichick. I'll post this up on Twitter and my uh, Facebook page, Pass Ball Show. Um, so a reminder that this is the famous Budweiser beer. We know no brand produced by any other brewer, and it costs so much to brew and age. Our exclusive Beachwood Aging produces a taste of smoothness and drinkability. You'll find a no beer at any cost. So Friday morning, I'll be getting on a plane heading to the great city of San Diego, and this will be the second time that I've been down there for the baseball winter meetings. And before I talk a little bit about my experience there, because I, I do think I can inspire some listeners or viewers, uh, give you reasons why it may make sense for you to go down there and reasons why it may not make sense for you to go down there. I was thinking about what should we expect out of this offseason in Major League Baseball. Let's, let's be serious. The last couple offseasons have left a lot to be desired. Not because... Big players weren't free agents, but because you've seen a shifting away from teams compensating the players in a fashion that they've been compensated. It's not like Bryce Harper didn't get paid. It's not like Manny Machado didn't get paid. But the, the teams that usually were doing the paying have been scaling back their spending. And we look at the luxury tax threshold as it exists in Major League Baseball and we say it's probably the prime example of a soft salary cap. Other sports have the salary cap. Football, basketball, hockey, baseball. Now, Donald Fear would never want to say this, or Gene Orzo would never want to say this. But the luxury tax threshold has acted as a soft salary cap. But we've seen the power of this, quote-unquote, soft cap have a lot more value over the last couple of years with teams not wanting to go over it, teams not wanting to have to pay that extra tax on the money that they spend over the luxury tax threshold. And a lot of it has led to free agency being as weak as it's been over the last couple of years. So my question, and I look at it and I say, what can we expect this year? You got Garrett Cole, you got Steven Strasburg, you got certainly some very good free agents out there. Mike Moustakis, like I, I said earlier, finally got his contract. His third consecutive year as a free agent. He gets a nice four-year deal with the Cincinnati Reds. I think he helped with his versatility, playing some second base last year. And he ends up fitting a Cincinnati Reds team that I, I really believe is going to take some steps forward this year and should be expecting to contend. So are we expecting to see a lot of action? Are we expecting to see a lot of trades? I think that I think you know, looking back at the last couple of years, it's hard to be worse than we were the last couple of years. It's hard to be in the months of February and almost approaching March when Manny Machado and Bryce Harper are inside. I don't think we're going to be in that phase this year, which should bode well for a guy like Dallas Keuchel, who didn't sign until midseason. 
Craig Kimbrell is under contract now with the Chicago Cubs. You know, his performance was probably affected by the fact that he didn't have a team during spring training or when the season started. So hopefully baseball and its players association, any agents, any owners could kind of have some sort of cohesion and understand that these players do deserve the right to work. Remember, I opened the show today talking about the right to work. When we're talking about bad people and people that have done bad things, and as long as it doesn't require them to be in prison at the moment, if they're not currently serving a sentence, they should have the right to work. And the same should apply to Major League Baseball players. They deserve the right to work. They are in the prime in a lot of cases of their career, some of them towards the twilight, but have something to offer. So I hope that MLB front offices think about this when they're putting together their roster. I understand every team is trying to operate from the peripheries of what they consider a budget. Some budgets are different than others. A couple teams are okay blowing over the luxury tax threshold, but we've what we found over the last couple seasons is even those teams that haven't had a problem with going over in the past are all of a sudden having a problem being over it right now. So it has worked as a salary cap. Now we're looking at a potential labor stoppage as we get towards the next collective bargaining agreement. And I know that the owners and the players have to do a lot to get on the same page. There's a lot of things that need to be addressed when it comes to free agency. And you know, the value of players. You know, that you know, you're looking at it when in a non tender deadline and the amount of different players that are out there as free agents now because teams don't value those players based off of what they're projected to make in salary arbitration. And I do think there needs to be some sort of transition from the salary arbitration process because you're looking at something that works very well for the players and you do your time you go through those first three years on a standard contract making barely more than a league minimum and all of a sudden you get progressive raises and sometimes the raises outweigh the quality of the players and that's what really we're looking at in the year of 2020 that's why there's so many good players that were let go by their teams because they weren't valued for the amount of money that they were projected to make in the salary arbitration process. So I do think there's a concession that should be made by the Players Association to say, hey, you know, that backup infielder that only plays one position, just because he's been in the league for five years, shouldn't be making $8 million. And it should be conceded to the other side where the owners should say that the better players should be in uniform with a team as a free agent within a due amount of time. And there has to be some middle ground there. So final thing I wanted to talk about, and as I've said a couple times before, this will be my sixth year being down in the baseball winter meetings, the second time in San Diego. I'm looking forward to it. And I'll I'll explain a little bit about why I go down there. Uh, I do shows down there. I network while I'm down there. And and for anybody that knows me, knows that I'm looking to break into business a little bit more than I've broken into already. I, I belong on television. I belong on a radio station. 
And for anybody that thinks that's pompous and arrogant, needs to understand that anybody that does this and doesn't believe that doesn't belong. But I digress for a second because I, I go down there and I remember the first time I ever went down to baseball winter meetings. And it's, it's interesting to talk about for this reason because I'm going back to San Diego. So this is the second time I'm going to be in San Diego. But the first time I ever went down there, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I just knew that it was baseball. I knew myself as a baseball radio show host. And I knew that I should be down there. I got on a plane, flew to, oh, down to San Diego, was by myself, probably was a little underdressed, was, was nice enough, or you know, was lucky enough to have a couple people down there that I was able to meet up with and speak with. And I'll throw their names out there. Jerry Krashnick was very, very nice to me. Uh, Joe Sambito, Matt Noakes. Uh, did some interviews afterwards over the phone with Heath Bell and Brad Ausmus. But I, I think the key was to be down there for the first time and just kind of learn the lessons. And it's not like I went out there and tried to do too much, but I did a lot of walking around. I did a lot of introducing myself. And for anybody that wants to be involved in Major League Baseball, I suggest you go down there. If you're a fan, if you are a autograph seeker, I don't think that's the right environment for you. Yet, there will be fans there. There will be autograph seekers there. And I'm not saying if you, you, know, if you live in San Diego and you want to get a couple autographs that you shouldn't show up. But it's, it's really more for the people that are going out there trying to get a job. And you see every year, you know, thousands of people are breaking into baseball and broadcasting because of the baseball winter meetings. And as I go down there again, you know, I'm kind of at a crossroads. You know, I haven't necessarily gotten what I've wanted out of it yet. But every year that I go down there, I know more people than I knew the last year I was there. Every time I go down there, I am better suited to be able to handle a conversation with anybody. And, you know, basically from my lips to God's ears, we'll see We'll see how it works out this year. But uh, I, the baseball winter meetings, if you are, you know, first of all, in the business, if it's something that you want to do, if you're interested in baseball, maybe doing that for a living or broadcasting, I suggest you go. A little bit of a recap of the show today. I was talking a little bit about millennials to start the show. And not that millennials are the worst generation of all time. It's something that's happened since the beginning of time. Every generation of human beings looks down on their kids and says, things are a little bit different now than they were when I grew up. And I'm seeing a disconnect between the youngest generation of sports fans right now. Very, very strict in regards to the standards that they hold players to. As if in a history of pro sports there was nothing but good people. Good athletes, good entertainers, good actors don't necessarily mean good people. And if you're a fan of a team and you say, hey, I don't want that guy or that player on my team because of what they said or what they did, 
I think you're being very, I don't know how to say it, naive in a looking back at the past of your team. If you're a Mets fan, if you're a Yankees fan, if you're a Phillies fan, if you're a Red Sox fan, you go back in the history of the very franchise that you root for and love. And you've seen bad players play for every team. And I'm not talking about bad players as far as bad performance on the field, but bad people that happen to wear that uniform that you root for and support. So you may hit a crossroads at some point and say, this player comes to my team and I don't like what they did. And what they did could have been wrong. What they did could have been very bad. What they did could have been heinous. What they did could have required them to spend time in prison. But the point that I made about this is once they've done whatever their time is, and you may feel that they didn't get enough of a punishment, but it's the way it ends up working out. Once they're out on their own, they should have the same right to work that you do. And that's one thing that I hope that younger fans will start to understand. If you're a free man or a free woman, you should not be restricted from having a job. Top 10 NFL head coaches of all time We'll put that up on johnpiali.com. Spoke a little bit about what the players union in Major League Baseball and ownership really have to do to kind of get together. And I think the salary arbitration process, a concession for the players to kind of uh, modify that a little bit with the expense from the owners to be more aggressive in signing the proper free agents within a certain time frame. I think that, that could be a little bit of an olive branch from both sides, things that could be worked on. Obviously, there's a ton of issues you could talk about when it comes to the players and the owners and reasons why we're looking at a work stoppage at the next collective bargaining agreement. So this will be the last show we'll do. and The next one will be down in San Diego. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania, by St. Aloysius Church and School in Jackson, New Jersey. God bless you, and as always, I'll see you on the other side.